Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 72. Thank you for clicking on that little triangle that points to the right for a go-round of this podcast that thrives on all things cinematic, past, present, and future. Whether this is your first time tuning in or your 72nd, you're taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, to listen. So, hey, thank you. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. It's here, the month of December. The last month of 2022. I can't explain it either, but here we are. The holiday season is upon us, and with it comes music, magic, miracles on 34th Street, and merriment. So to accompany the lights, the gift-giving, the confectionery delights, and a lot of eggnog for those who need to get through those awkward family get-togethers, let's start this episode on a high note... Thank you, Gabriel. With the official announcement that this time around, we are going to take a look at two U.S. television movies from the hauntingly tacky decade of the 1980s. But if you are presently thinking, I clicked on that little triangle that points to the right to hear about TV movies from three decades back. Ah! Whoa, boss, don't get your jingle in a jangle. And just take it down a level. Let me suggest helpfully, but helpfully, that we call to mind the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. Hopefully that stopped you from pulling the cord to get off the bus. For this episode, we'll follow the usual format for an episode without a guest. Spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both 1983's The Best Christmas Pageant Ever and 1988's A Very Brady Christmas. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one, and then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the listener trivia segment. So join me as we rewind first back to the holiday season of 1983, the year when the Mario Brothers was first released as a Nintendo arcade game in Japan. The Motorola company introduced the first mobile phones to the public. Sally Ride became the first American woman in space on the Space Shuttle Challenger. Cabbage Patch dolls became all the rage. And for the leading lady of the best Christmas pageant ever, two-time Emmy-winning actress Loretta Swit. The final episode of her TV series MASH set a record for the number of viewers who tuned in to watch those rocks spell out the word goodbye. There was not a dry eye in anyone's house. But those tears were wiped away as Ms. Swit remained on TV screens for a few months longer, starring in not one but two TV movies before the end of the year. The second of them is the best Christmas pageant ever, with a teleplay written by Barbara Robinson based on her own 1972 children's book and directed by George Schaefer, a seven-time Emmy-winning director of close to a hundred TV movies and a small smattering of feature films. So let me give you my own experience with this little ditty. It premiered on TV on December 5, 1983, and to be candid, I cannot remember if it was then or the following year when I first saw it. Either way, I first saw it when I was a wee one in elementary school, and they showed it to my entire class. I do remember liking it, and the school librarian giving us a little sales pitch for Barbara Robinson's book. It was apparently published in shorter form in McCall's magazine under the title The Christmas Pageant before becoming a full-fledged novel aimed at ages 8 to 12 in 1972. And in 1982, one year before the TV movie premiered in December of 83, it first came to life as a play, with opening night on November 26, 1982, at the Seattle Children's Theater in Washington State. Regardless of whether I watched it in school in 83 or 84, I did find out that it was going to be aired one weekend night in December of 84, so I recorded it on the Family Beta VCR, or as I affectionately call that prehistoric relic now, Old Bessie. Then it happened. 
One year after that, now it's 1985, I was in a new school, a Catholic school, for the first time in my life, with a new class in another town, and we were assigned that paragon of persuasive writing. Yes, it was time for us to pull a Ralphie Packer and tackle a formal writing assignment. Now, boys and girls, I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to write a theme. For us, though, it was a book report. Being within the age range of 8 to 12 that the cover of Barbara Robinson's book recommended, I fully immersed myself in reading the thing and providing bright, sparkling analysis. It shined. It shimmered. I could wallpaper the room with it. It glowed in the dark so much. And we were required to include an illustration of our favorite moment. I painstakingly took writing utensil to paper, and as someone whose stick figures look like circles, I was determined to draw something that would scream Frankelangelo. I stepped back when I was done to admire my work and was delighted at how detailed it was. For one of the characters, I even included strands of hair that had gone astray, for Christ's sake. Marching victoriously into the school building the morning the book report was due, I climbed the stairs to my second-floor classroom, walked in, took my seat, and beamed with pride at what I had accomplished. I wish I could say I also brought in a big-ass fruit basket for my teacher like Ralphie, but I'd be lying. There I was, the new kid in town, and I was going to start off with a bang. Alas, it turned out to be a whimper. When the book reports were returned to us, I eagerly opened the cover to see what the teacher, let's just call her Sister Mary Immaculata, what she had to say. I flipped through the pages of my creation faster than a dealer at Vegas when my lower jaw detached from the rest of my face in shock and bewilderment. The teacher, let's just call her Sister Mary Immaculata, had written that she was disappointed to see that I hadn't colored in the picture that I drew. What I wanted was to holler, Hey, sis, you ever hear the expression that less is more? And the thing of it is, my tale of writer's woe does not end there, oh no. When everyone got theirs back, we were treated to a little lecture about how pleased she was to see that some of us had taken the time to color in our illustrations, emphasis on the sum. That passive-aggressive tactic that so many of us know and love from our school days. Granted, this was over three decades ago, but I'm still trying to pick up the pieces and go on with my life. Maybe that's why I became a teacher myself, to try to negate that generational nonsense with a different approach. Anywho, as the 1983 movie begins, we see an illustration, and yes, for the love of God, it is colored in, of the angel of the Lord blowing a big-ass bubble with her chewing gum. She's got on a fake halo that looks like it was made from the top of a pickle barrel, and the title is written all over her flowing white robe. Dissolved to a close-up of a storefront window with a couple of turkeys and a cornucopia on display, and as the camera pulls back, we see the sign above that says, Thanksgiving turkeys, only one week left, order now. What better way to establish setting? A couple of workers, one of them on a ladder, are hanging garlands all along the storefront. They're both wearing identical bright orange jumpsuits, so you gotta wonder, is this a chain gang straight out of Cool Hand Luke? What we got here is a failure to communicate. Cut to the exterior shot of a church with a few cars, including a very 80s station wagon parked out front. Inside is a classroom where a Sunday school class is in session. The teacher, Mrs. Helen Armstrong, played by Janet Wright, is at the front of the room writing down on the board everything that these kids are dutifully saying that they're grateful for. And here's where I go back and forth. Are we supposed to take this scene as schmaltz? Or is this a wickedly clever satire of self-righteousness and kids sucking up to curry favor from adults in a church setting where they want to be spiritually saved? I go with the latter because the scene is funny as hell. I mean, it's not clutch your stomach, your sides are in danger of being split kind of funny. But it's more inwardly chuckling at the familiarity of the environment, especially for anyone who grew up in stifling scenarios like this. 
So, Mrs. Armstrong is at the board, and we hear her saying, as she writes, I like to learn songs about Jesus. Then she calls on one of the kids. How about you, Francis? And little Francis, she stands straight up and declares, I like coloring pictures and acting out Bible things. Wait, so this little ass punk colors her pictures in too? Did I not get the memo or something? Anyway, Mrs. Armstrong jumps out of her shoes and lets out a delighted gasp as she shakes her arms back and forth like some thrashing machine as she writes what Francis said on the board and says, You're gonna love the Christmas pageant, Francis. And while Mrs. Armstrong is gleefully scribbling Francis's sentiment on the board, cut to a reaction of three of the kids who look totally unimpressed. Then Mrs. Armstrong turns teasingly to everyone and says, Now, let me see. And a few voices call out her name in a desperate bid for approval, wanting her to pick me, pick me. She bestows the honor of recognition on little Ramona, who stands and says with a phony grin that shows 4,000 teeth, what I like best is the good feeling I get in Sunday school. Okay, stop, you sycophantic snot, stop. Don't shovel the shit and call it sugar, okay? But Mrs. Armstrong responds with the exhilaration of a pig and shit as she sighs. Oh, I think we can all say that, Ramona. She puts it on the board and then says tantalizingly, And now, this time, for one more, one more thankful thought. And she makes the biggest mistake of her sanctimonious life when she calls on young Charlie, played by David Alexander. Charlie, what do you like best about Sunday school, Charlie? He stands up glumly and shoots straight from the hip. There aren't any herdmans here. She gives him an evil glare that can make Macbeth shake in his boots, as there's some chuckling from this otherwise pious pile of cherubs. Cut to Charlie sitting at the table at home with his parents, Bob, played by Jackson Davies, and Grace, Mash's own Loretta Swit. His younger sister Beth, played by a debuting Feruza Balk, is there too, as Bob chastises his son for what he said in Sunday school. After telling Charlie that it was not a very Christian sentiment, Grace steps in and defends her boy, saying, Charlie was black and blue all last year because he had to sit next to Leroy Herdman in school. And even at the young age of nine or ten, I remember thinking, this is the first time that Bob is finding this out? Where was he all last year, walking along the primrose path? Know your kid, Bob. But Bob barely registers any kind of acknowledgement of what Grace just said, and just asks if Leroy is the worst one. Beth replies, they're all the worst. Bob won't have any of this and simply proclaims, Six little kids, it can't be that bad. Bob, oh Bob, shut the fuck up. You're every kid's worst nightmare. Just stop before you sink any deeper. Then Beth turns to the camera, breaks the fourth wall, and speaks to us. Whenever I first saw this, I was there like, Who the hell is she talking to? And then after a few seconds, I realized, Oh, she's narrating. She gets this dramatic and self-righteous look on her face as a string instrument plays one elongated note of tension as she tells us, my father's wrong. The Herdmans are the worst kids in the whole history of the world. They lie and steal and smoke cigars, even the girls, and talk dirty and hit little kids and cuss their teachers. And then she drops the H-bomb. She finishes listing off their transgressions by saving the worst for last. She says, And they take the name of the Lord in vain. And then she serves up the fact that these six Herdman kids are arsonists as well. There's a flashback to the three Herdman boys putting together some chemical mixture inside Fred Shoemaker's old broken-down toolhouse. They run outside as it explodes and burns to the ground, and all six Herdman kids are laughing and high-fiving and living their best life. Looking back on it now, yeah, that's some heavy-ass shit to put in a children's Christmas movie, but we go with it. Beth proceeds to describe their living environment. They live above an old garage and spend most of their time banging the garage door up and down as fast as they can, trying to squash one another. 
Light-hearted music plays throughout this disturbing sequence, where you see some of the Herdman kids running around, torturing each other, stealing each other's stuff, giving each other a hard time with a lot of yells and screams, dirt all over their faces, torn clothing. The music, I guess, is meant to reassure us that it's okay, it's all in good fun, but seeing these kids living in absolute squalor, with this whimsical score playing throughout, it's not a good fit. It's like putting lace in a bowling ball. And before I'm accused of being too soft-hearted, Beth's narration continues with, The Herdmans didn't know where their father was. When Gladys was two years old, he hopped up on a railroad train and disappeared. Nobody blamed him. Now and then you'd see Mrs. Herdman walking the cat around the block on this big long chain, but she works two shifts at the shoe factory and isn't home much. Nobody blamed her either. Cut to Imogene Herdman, played by Megan Hunt, looking out the top floor window, looking down the street, and calling out to her siblings, Here comes the welfare lady! The welfare lady pulls up to the garage building, and immediately a couple of the Herdman boys, Leroy, played by Jason Micus, and Ollie, played by Shane Punt, run up to her car and begin banging on her hood. She yells at them to stop, and they do, and she climbs out and calls to Imogene, who reappears at the window. She calls up at her, Imogene, I want to talk to your mother. Imogene calls back, She's not here. Well, then will you have her call me? And then the welfare lady begins to reset her phone number, but she's cut off as Imogene slams the window shut, yelling, The phone doesn't work. Beth's monologue concludes with her prediction that the six Herdman kids will all end up at the state penitentiary. Cut to a really shoddy-looking poster board with all of the lettering stenciled and announcing Sunday, December 4, Christmas pageant tryouts. All interested children, please attend after Sunday school. Grace does the manipulative mom thing as the family is seen again at the table. Do they ever do anything but eat? And tells both Charlie and Beth, Remember, kids, the tryouts for the Christmas pageants are this Sunday. Charlie complains that he doesn't want to do it, but Grace says, Now think how I'd feel, sitting there at church on Christmas Eve with my own two kids not in the pageant. Think how your father would feel. And Bob just sips his coffee, and she demands, You'd feel terrible, wouldn't you, Bob? And in an additional display of detachment from his kids, he blandly answers, No. Grace ignores him and presses on. Mrs. Armstrong works very hard to give everyone a lovely experience. And the kids shoot back smoothly and knowledgeably. Oh, Mom, she just likes to run things. But then Mrs. Armstrong breaks her leg. None of the church ladies want to replace her in directing the pageant, and Grace ends up with the gig. Predictably, Bland Bob offers her his sympathies, but no help, though he will offer his bathrobe to be used by one of the shepherds. What a sport. The Herdmans show up for the tryouts. All of the other kids back away in fear. So now Grace has to put on the best Christmas pageant ever with the Herdmans. And the stereotype of the self-satisfied, holier-than-thou churchgoer comes out in full force in a great satirical bit where four different church ladies are seen all at once in a four-way split-screen gossiping, all aghast, saying things like, What kind of a child is Imogene to play Mary, the mother of Jesus? It's sacrilegious. And... If you can't get rid of them, why don't you have them hand out programs at the door? And lastly, nail down that church and lock up the silverware. But let's leave the Fab Four and their little diamond-shaped sections of the TV screen and pivot towards this episode's other Yuletide delight, and that would be the 257th reunion of the cast of the sitcom The Brady Bunch. The 1988 TV movie of Very Brady Christmas, which first aired on December 18, 1988, and amazingly was the second-highest-rated TV movie of the year. As this schlockfest of a guilty pleasure opens, we see a replay of the opening credits from the sitcom's first season 19 years earlier at that point in time. 
Die-hard Brady fans know that the six Brady kids did not sing the opening theme until season two. For the first season, it was a studio band called the Peppermint Trolley Company, which, to be fair, is the best rendition of the show's five seasons. So it's weird hearing the kids singing the famous song while looking at the first season squares. And just as they reach the point in the song where they sing, and that's the way we all became the Brady Bunch, on the word bunch, a lovely red ribbon appears magically at the top of the famous Brady bingo card, and Garland surrounds the title of this two-hour-long trip down Brady Lane. It's very festive-looking. I should point out that in her usual top left-hand square is Masha Brady, played by Maureen McCormick. And does she look pissed. Haven't seen a grumpy face like this since Harrison Ford did the Star Wars Holiday Special in 1978. You can practically hear her thoughts. This is my latest paycheck. She's ready to cross the border into Florence Henderson Square and take her down in a rage-filled smackdown. But the song ends, and so too does her smallest of smiles. Dissolve to an opening shot of the legs of Carol Brady, played by Florence Henderson, as she pedals away on an exercise bike with classic TV dad Mike Brady, played by Robert Reed, doing the same next to her. One thing about the way Florence Henderson talks is that in the original series and here, she always pronounces his name Mike. When Shelley Long played Carol Brady in the spoof The Brady Bunch movie in the 90s, she took it to the hilt. So Carol calls out, Pedal faster, Mike! He says, I'm faster than you. And she replies, ho, ho, that'll be the day, ho, ho. She stops pedaling and says with satisfaction, ah, there, two miles, I'm done. And I say to the screen in disbelief, that's it, two miles. No pre-existing conditions. You dance like your barefoot on a hot rock, and two miles is all you got to give. Wuss. And can we talk about the purple sweatshirt she's wearing? I don't know what it is, but it looks like someone just threw a bucket of red paint on her. Mike, meanwhile, apparently dressed and ready for Club Med, tries to pry himself away from her greedy clutches as she tries to goad him into telling her what he got her for Christmas. He says no dice and walks out of the den into the kitchen with her in hot pursuit. A blaring but cheerful medley of Dr. Hall's Jingle Bells and the Brady theme strikes up as she follows him out of the Brady kitchen, into the Brady living room, up to the Brady front door, over to the Brady coat closet, down into Mike's private den, halfway up the Brady staircase, and finally back into the Brady kitchen. It's a grand way for the set designer to show off how Carol and Mike have repainted, remodeled, and dazzled up their home from the tacky 70s to the gaudy 80s. All this time, the remaining opening credits roll with the medley taking over the soundtrack as they do pantomime. She's waving her arms at him like a demanding child. He's all business looking for his checkbook and maybe a muzzle for her. Once the music and the credits stop, they're back in the kitchen, and she's still whining that she's not even getting a hint out of him and actually has the wontons to say to his face that she hopes he's generous. Okay, stop, stop, you materialistic grub. What the hell is wrong with you? Married for 19 years in the Brady universe, and this is their dynamic. He does not relent to his credit, so she then tries a different tactic and dials up the sexy. She physically plants herself on top of him like a convict enjoying his first conjugal visit and tells him, I don't have to be at the business at the real estate office today and you don't have to go to business either, so I thought maybe you and I could do some business together here. So we learn three things here. A. She now works in real estate. B. Not only is she a gift grub, but exercise bikes and talk of Christmas gifts apparently get her horny as a toad. And C, it's the kitchen where she apparently prefers to make her move for some horizontal refreshment. Then there's some expository dialogue where he mentions that he's got to meet a guy named Ted Roberts to go over the plans that Mike did for his new building, lest we forget that he's an architect. 
In fact, Carol introduced the two of them when she sold Ted Roberts some land and recommended her husband as the perfect candidate to draw up the designs for his building. I think that's what in the business world they call conflict of interest. But in the Brady universe, there's no such thing. It's family first. Mike leaves to go shower, and she rushes to the very 80s telephone to call upon our six favorite TV siblings, all grown up now. You see, Carol just had to tell somebody what she's getting Mike for Christmas, or she'll bust. A trip to Greece. Cue the sitcom wisecracks as perpetual middle child Jan, played by Eve Plum, has a worthy Emmy clip when she says, I never did know which dad liked better, you or the Venus de Milo. <laughs> Youngest child Cindy, played by Jennifer Runyon, who stepped into the role when the original Cindy, Susan Olson, was unavailable at the time of the production. She comments, Oh, who wouldn't want a trip to Greece for Christmas? And Carol's response, most of the people living in Athens, I guess. <laughs> After we're reintroduced to the six and marvel at how they've aged so well and say to each other, just as the cast and crew hoped, Hey, doesn't Peter look hot? And how is Bobby eating both pizza and Chinese at the same time by himself? Round two of the phone calls begin, only this time it's Mike telling his six moppets that his gift to Carol is a trip to Japan. Dissolve 2, Carol and Mike together answering the doorbell to find our favorite maid, Alice, played by Emmy winner Ann B. Davis, leaning against the doorbell with luggage in tow. Over coffee, Alice spills the tea. Thank you. Seems her boyfriend from the original series, Sam the Butcher, is now her husband, but he's left her. Mike reads the note aloud to the three of them. Okay, do you have to do that? Can't you and Carol read it silently to yourselves so that Alice's emotional scabs won't be ripped off or her wounds to bleed afresh? Dick move there, architect boy. The note reads, Dear Alice, I lied to you. I was not working late plucking chickens. I met a younger woman. At first, we just traded meatloaf recipes. Then one night, she asked me over to season her rump roast. Okay, whoa! Slow down, squeaky clean Brady's. You gotta walk before you can run. They invite Alice to stay with them, and the very next morning, she's got on her trademark blue dress and white apron. Did she hang on to that butt-ugly outfit all these years, and if so, why? Mike walks in to see six places set at the table for breakfast, and Alice laughs, Oh, I set places for Greg, Masha, Peter, Jan, Bobby, and Cindy. Why doesn't she just say the kids instead of listing them off by order of birth? And what's even more baffling is that the scene opens with Carol having been in the kitchen with her all this time. How did Carol not notice? Probably too preoccupied with how kitchens get her hot, but she can no longer boink Mike with Alice there, I guess. More than likely too preoccupied with how kitchens get her hot, but she can no longer boink Mike with Alice there, I guess. Ultimately, the plans for Japan and Greece are cancelled, and they decide to spend the money on plane tickets for the entire Brady Bunch to come home for the holidays. Mike suggests it first, and Carol looks up at a 45-degree angle, with a dazed smile on her face as she replies, Husbands? Wives? Families? No, Carol, leave the in-laws outside with a bowl by the door. But Alice's marital woes are just the tip of the asteroid, as it turns out, each of the six Brady kids has a crisis of their own to deal with. Masha's husband just lost his job. Greg's wife chooses to be with her family, and sends Greg and their son off to Brady land alone. Peter is bothered that his girlfriend is his boss. Jan's own marriage is floundering. Bobby secretly dropped out of grad school for business administration a year earlier to become a race car driver, and the kitty carry-all queen herself, Cindy, is tired of being treated as a baby and is even assigned to sit with the grandkids at their folding table while her five siblings are all the big one with Carol and Mike. 
But this is the TV family that specializes in con and sap, so rest assured, everything will get neatly resolved within the allotted two-hour running time. Minus commercials. But let's leave the Bradys at Bobby's racetrack to watch him put his assets on the line, and what say we now pivot towards the behind-the-scenes fun facts? Wow, I love the alacrity. Thanks. Let's begin with the Herdmans and that memorable Christmas pageant. I couldn't find a lot on this one, but I did manage to eke out four fun facts from my research. Number four. Actress Feruza Bach narrates the movie as Grace's daughter Beth. You may know her from such films as The Worst Witch with Diana Rigg, Tim Curry, and Charlotte Ray, who's Mrs. Garrett from the hit sitcom The Facts of Life. Bach also had a memorable starring role as Dorothy in one of the biggest psychedelic freak shows of the 80s or any other decade that occurred on this planet, 1985's Return to Oz. She also played the out-of-control Nancy in 1996's The Craft and had a big year playing Adam Sandler's love interest in the comedy The Waterboy and Edward Norton's on-screen girlfriend Stacy in the disturbing American History X. Number 3. This made-for-TV special was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Children's Program, but the award went instead to He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing, a documentary about Jacques Diembois, I think I pronounced that correctly, a former American ballet star who featured in films like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Carousel, and later became a New York dancing instructor. Emil Adelino directed this, and he would go on also to direct 1987's Dirty Dancing and 1992's Sister Act. Number 2. In April of 2012, UpcomingMovies.com announced that their planned remake of The Best Christmas Pageant Ever had just signed on Andy Fickman as director. His films include 2012's Parental Guidance with Billy Crystal, Bette Midler, and Marissa Tomei, and 2015's Paul Blatt, Mall Cop 2. Walden Media would have produced the film with Kristen Buckley and Brian Reagan adapting, but alas, the planned remake was shelved and was never made. Number 1. After being the only regular female cast member of the TV series MASH for all of its 11 seasons, while winning two Emmy Awards along the way for her portrayal of Hot Lips Houlihan, Loretta Swift's first acting gig after the series ended in 1983 was a TV movie called First Affair with other TV comedy and drama stars like Melissa Sue Anderson of Little House on the Prairie, Joel Higgins of Silver Spoons, Amanda Bierce of Married with Children, and Kim Delaney of NYPD Blue. It debuted in October of 1983, with the Best Christmas pageant premiering two months later. And as for that beloved brood of Brady's, number four. Actress Jennifer Runyon of Ghostbusters, the first season of the sitcom Charles and Charge, and the pilot episode of the cult favorite Quantum Leap, replaced original Cindy Brady actress Susan Olsen. According to Susan Olsen years later, she was not part of the Brady reunion this time around because her honeymoon in Jamaica conflicted with the shooting schedule. She also claimed that when the movie's producers went to Paramount to pitch the idea for the Brady Christmas reunion, they did greenlight it, but said that they only had to sign on five of the six original kids to get the special produced. So she technically was not needed. And since she was the youngest, she'd be paid the least. When I first saw that, I thought... but then realized that Maureen McCormick and Eve Plum, who played Masha and Jan, both put in more Brady time than Susan Olsen did, seeing as how they had their own short-lived spinoff in 1981 called The Brady Brides. Number 3. A Very Brady Christmas was a wild success when it aired in 1988, 
The TV movie gained a massive 25.1 Nielsen rating at the time, which is practically unheard of now, what with streaming. We all know TV is just a whole different ball of wax these days. According to MeTV, a third of the people watching TV that night were watching A Very Brady Christmas. Number two. All four of the original Brady men, Robert Reed as Mike, Barry Williams as Greg, Christopher Knight as Peter, Mike Lookinland as Bobby, had mustaches when this was first going into production. Producer Sherwood Schwartz said, uh-uh, and demanded that at least two of them shave. Dad Brady and oldest son Greg retained the prickly upper lips, while Peter and Bobby made their skin as smooth as silk. And number one. Because of the success of this Christmas reunion special, the powers that be at the network wasted no time in hastily assembling a new series that would simply be called The Brady's. They envisioned a comedy drama with the original cast and returning actors who played the spouses and grandkids in the Christmas show. Primetime adult-focused TV shows like 30-something were all the rage, so they thought it could hop on that bandwagon. Bobby had a race car accident and was paralyzed from the waist down and confined to a wheelchair. Cindy faced an ethical crisis when she had to decide whether or not to sleep with her boss. Mike and his local politics. Jan and her husband Philip adopted a young girl from Asia when they realized they could not physically have children. And Masha deals with alcoholism. It aired on Friday nights at 8 p.m. and lasted an impressively whopping five episodes. All of those storylines introduced and resolved in five episodes. February through March of 1990. A pre-home improvement, pre-Lion King, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, played Kevin Brady, Greg's son, replacing Zachary Bostrom, who played the role in A Very Brady Christmas. And with that, it is time now to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, number 72, was... Would you rather direct the church Christmas pageant with six rowdy hooligans or spend the holiday with a family that should have stock and saccharin? On the Silver Screeners Facebook group, 85% of the votes went to whipping those punks into church-ready shape, with the remaining votes favoring the Bradys. Among the comments were Kim M., who said, One can only take so much saccharin. Give me the brats. Even Imogene was reduced to tears in the end. Indeed she was. And Kim and I would know. She's my oldest sister. We watched this special religiously as kids. No pun intended. Or was it? And Joe M., otherwise known as my Uncle Joe, said, What about a Tom Brady Christmas? Oof. With all due respect, dear Uncle, Tom Brady may have been the goat, but now he's a major ass. No pun intended. Or was it? On Twitter, 100% of the votes went to the Bradys. So, taken all together... The Herdmans matched down that church aisle victorious. As always, thanks to everyone who voted, involvement is just as cool as Peter Brady asking his brother Bobby, Hey, listen, now that we're all grown up, do you mind being called Bobby? And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974. Or you can simply email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And now it is time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. 
You're all invited to take a crack at it at any time you like. I do want to say that I err on the side of caution, so I do not announce both first and last names, just in case that would make anyone uncomfortable, so I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me otherwise, full names it is. You get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting, and do not worry about timing. No matter what episode you're listening to, from two years ago or from last week, answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You'll get your meme and your shout-out. And if you're a creator, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, a YouTuber, independent business owner, anything, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. So what do you got to lose? Join the trivia. So last time, we paid tribute to the classic Thanksgiving comedy Planes, Trains, and Automobiles for its 35th anniversary, and the question was, three of the actors in small roles in this film were all also in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, including Edie McClurg. She's the car rental agent in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, as well as Ferris Bueller's school secretary. She was also, years earlier, one of the bullies who torments Sissy Spacek in what 1976 horror movie based on a Stephen King novel? The climax of the film is the senior prom. And the answer is Carrie. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to the following in no particular order. Movie trivia mainstay, loyal listener, fellow podcaster, and friend, DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Oscars podcast. He also referred to Carrie as his favorite Europe power ballad, so there you go. Now it's in your head, too. Thanks for playing, Nick. Check out his and his co-hosts, Rachel and Zan's latest episode on Silence of the Lambs. We've been on each other's shows, and Nick is the real deal. And there's also Stu of the Stu and Al Pod, the first podcaster I came in contact with a couple of years ago now. It was their first Christmas episode, and they were asking listeners for their top three Christmas songs. And I figured, what the hell? I'll answer. Two years later, we've been on each other's shows, and here we are now. Moving right along, there's also former and soon-to-be future guest Liz M., a.k.a. my sister-in-law who kicks ass eight ways from Sunday, and my pal Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho, whose latest episode is on the new Netflix movie The Good Nurse, starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. Give that one a go. And Seven Seas of the No on 15 All cast also brings it home. That show's latest is on the DC Comics flick Black Adam, starring Dwayne Johnson and Piers Brosnan, so check it out. Thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else listening, there is no time like the present. Join the trivia. It's fun, easy, and does not cost you a cent. And you can begin with this episode's question. Now, I mentioned that Jonathan Taylor Thomas of the Tim Allen sitcom Home Improvement had an early role in the short-lived series The Brady's in 1990. He was the voice of young Simba in 1994's The Lion King, too. Name the distinguished actor who provides the voice of Simba's father, Mufasa. You may also know him from his famous vocal performance as Darth Vader. Go on and send in your answers. And as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode or any episode that you have listened to, just hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 72 to a delightful conclusion. As always, thank you to everyone who is listening, has ever listened, or who will in the future be listening. 
Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please don't hesitate to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the pristine, pure Brady Bunch walking into church on Christmas Eve, only to find the Herdmans in the pageant. And hear how the Bradys knock each other out of the way to the floor, trying to run back out from whence they came. <laughs> <laughs>